the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. I don't know why I get so excited all at once, but it don't take just a little spark to get this Holy Ghost fire pumping in me. Because I'm, I'm, I love the Word of God. I love God with all my heart. I want to be contagious. I want to. I want to. I want God to set me on fire, so some people can say, "Hey, let's come watch him burn till we catch on fire." I want to see. I want to people see me swimming in the in the fullness of God, so that they don't get off the bank and jump in themselves. Because what I'm preaching is real, man. I know about this stuff I'm preaching. I've lived it. This is not something I learned in the Bible school somewhere. This is changing my life day by day. We're starting, I guess we may be starting a new series called The Human Condition. And part one is tonight, and I'm going to entitle it The Threads. The Threads. And you'll begin to understand what that means as we go along. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's always good to start at the beginning. Sometimes it is. I remember when I was a kid, I promised God I was going to le- read the, the whole Bible. I started in Genesis about ten times, never made it out of it. Maybe I should have started in the New Testament. <laughs> but, but tonight we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us and then the fun began (laughs) that's when everything went south when he says let us make human beings in his image he was talking about the father son and the holy spirit you know he's a triune being so he made us in his image he made us triune beings body soul and spirit right all right so I know he knew what he was getting into, but it just puzzles me that he did it anyway. <laughs> he did it anyway. Have you ever looked at, like, just pulled one puzzle piece out of a 500 puzzle box or something and looked at it without having looked at the box and said, yeah, I want to I wanna see where this goes? You'd have no idea how to put the thing together, would you? Well, sometimes that's the way we do our lives. We just see one little old puzzle piece. Or we read the Bible, we read one little old verse out of the whole thing, and we don't get a concept of how big and beautiful the thing is when it's all put together. So tonight we're going to talk about the need to see the big picture. We're going to just an overlay. I mean, I'm coming from way up high. I'm a big vision kind of guy. I like to know what the whole story is, and then I drill down. Some of us like to stay in our little small places, but I like to go big and then work my way in. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. The Bible is is a beautiful tapestry. It's a beautiful puzzle. It's a beautiful picture of a lot of things. And there are threads all through the Word of God. And that's where I got the title, Threads. You begin to 
put different pieces in the different sections of the Bible? How does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? Uh, and where was the prophets? And, and how did the you know, uh, judges and all them come in? And what, what happened in Genesis? What, what's, what started all this? I like to put it all together and make sense of it sometimes. And so we're going to, from a high level, I'm not going to drill down into anything really deep in any one situation, but we're just going to begin to scan over things so that we can make sense of this beautiful picture. We're, it's like looking down at the earth and seeing it from the uh, space shuttle or something. Now, I know you've begun to see threads in your life, and, and you can look back and you can see things that happened to you at a certain period in your life, and you didn't know why that was happening, didn't make any sense to you, or things that you thought were so important back then and turned out weren't so important. But there are things when you look back now, especially when you look back at your life before you met Jesus, you can look back and say, well, there were certainly some threads in my life. One of them was I didn't seem to make any right decisions. <laughs> you know, if you're like me, you, you were selfish, stubborn, and sinful. Somebody might say I was slimy, slippery, and stupid. I don't know. There's a lot of things you could say I was back then. But one of the threads that I see that no matter how I was, God was still always there in my life. I don't know if I was saved as a child. I always tell you I was saved at 32, but God seems to think I was saved as a kid. But I certainly didn't begin to get converted until I was 32. I didn't start living. I didn't know Him until I was 32. He may have known me, but I always had a sense that there was something bigger. I always had a conscience. I always felt bad when I would sin, even when I was at my worst, you know. But I look back, and through everything I did, there was a, he was always there. I couldn't hide from him, though I wish I could have sometimes. We may try to run God off, but he never backs off. And he never gives up. And I look back and I see those threads worked into my individual life. What kind of threads do you see in your life when you look back? What kind of picture... Does your, did your life paint before Jesus? And what kind of picture is your life painting now that you're following Jesus? Well, let's look at some threads throughout the Bible. Like I said, we're going to start in the beginning. Let's just talk about the garden for a minute. We already said that God made us in His image. Why did He make man? He made us because He wanted someone to love on. God is love, and that's what love does. God wanted someone. He wanted children. And then he came up with this idea to make us in his image. You know, because if you're going to have children, they're kind of made in your image. And he wanted children. And he took it so far that he was willing to give mankind free will. Just like he has. The ability to make our own choices. And he knew, he knew, God knows everything. He knew when he put that tree in the garden, that one little tree out of the whole garden, and told them and warned them, he knew they were still going to eat of that tree because that's what kids do. Thank you. <laughs> but some people might say, well, why did God do that? Why, did, why didn't he put it? Why did he put a tree? Is he trying to tempt us or whatever? You see, God walked with us in the cool of the evening. But He had a bigger plan than that. He didn't just want to walk with us. He wanted to walk in us. And He couldn't get in us without permission. And He couldn't get permission unless we had a free will to ask Him in. 
And you can't get love unless you choose love. I mean, you can't get... Love requires a choice. And so he didn't create robots that had to serve him. He created people with a free will. And as much as it has cost him, his love compelled him. That's who he is. And so he had a plan from the beginning. It may not look at, when, when you pull that one piece out of the box and say, God, what were you thinking? This is the ugliest piece I've ever seen. Given man free will, have you seen what it's done to the earth? But God had a plan. And as you'll see throughout the Bible, when sin entered in, God said, you know, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. They didn't die physically right away. They died spiritually. They had to be kicked out of the garden. They had to be separated from, from God's presence. And that's what sin does. It separates us. And darkness began to fill the whole earth. The curse came upon the earth. Sin began. It says the earth itself groans and moans, waiting for the coming of the sons of God, waiting for all this to be over with. Death and decay, even in the trees and in the, in the rocks and valleys and stuff, the, the earth is in a process of dying, just the same as humans are. The whole, all of creation is, is decaying and dying because of sin entered the equation. And when death entered in, darkness covered all of the land. Where there once was light, God said, let there be light. Now it's the darkness of sin. And everybody that's born is born into the bloodline of those sinners, Adam and Eve. It has Adam's sinful blood coursing through your veins, and so you're, you're born into sin. Of course, it doesn't take you but a couple months to learn how to sin on your own. But even so, that cute little baby in the nursery is born into sin. We have a sin condition. We have a problem. Hello, control. <laughs> we have a problem. So they had children. The first older brother killed his younger brother. Cain killed Abel right off the bat. Ugly. You talking about... I don't know why this came to me, but some of you who struggle with your kids going off and doing their own thing even though you think you raised them right, what about God? I mean, his first two children got kicked out the house. And his grandchildren were murdered. One of his grandchildren was a murderer. See, people have a free will. Even our children, even if they're raised properly, they have to make the right decisions for themselves. Every man does. Cain killed Abel, and it got uglier from there. And that became the norm. Wickedness began to rule on the earth. Every man just did what he thought was right in his own eyes. And it got so bad that God thought to himself, what have I done? Now, I know God doesn't really have to second-guess himself. But in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness, which was now upon the earth, and He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. I mean, there was not even a glimmer of light in these people. They had just given in completely to the ravages of sin. And just done whatever felt good to their flesh. And so the Lord was sorry He had even made them and put them on the earth. It broke His heart. That always breaks my heart to see when God's heart's broke. 
It broke God's heart that people chose evil. And then, instead of backing up and repenting and saying, I'm sorry, and trying to do better, they got worse. It got to a point where God had to bring a flood upon the earth to start all over again. He was going to probably start all over again with a new Adam and Eve or something, I don't know, but he found Noah. He found one righteous man who had a couple of sons and their wives who all seemed to be trying to follow the Lord, so he got them to build a big ark to save themselves. And not only to save them, they welcomed everybody. All right, any of you sinners, all of you dark people, if you want to come out of the darkness, we're warning you there's coming a day. Come on, get on the boat and be saved. And that's what it feels like today when we go to door to door sometimes, isn't it? It feels like you're telling people to get on the boat and they're like, dude, I don't believe in the rain. You know, they just don't see it. And so, but God opened the door. The door of the ark was open for a long, long time. And he welcomed them in. They didn't want to come in. And you, and you think, well, God, man, he, that's awful stout. I mean, is God cruel that he would wipe out all of mankind and all the animals that he created on the face of the earth except two of each kind? You know, is, that, is that cruel? Can we consider God cruel? Well, it says every intention of their heart, every action was totally evil. God could look ahead and see that none of these people were going to repent. God could look at, he had given them an opportunity to get on the boat, but they refused it. And they, they were either going to die now, quick and less painlessly, or they were going to kill each other off one by one in their evil, wicked schemes. And so it was kind of merciful that God gave that group a second chance. He, he gave uh, Noah and his sons bacon, egg, and cheese a chance to get on the boat and their wives. <laughs> I always said that to the children. They always got a kick out of it. But, of course, it was Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons. But they got on the boat, so it was eight people on the boat. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so God is, is going to start over with eight people. All the wicked are gone, and he's starting out with the righteous. Now, surely, we're getting a second chance here. You guys just saw what happened to the wicked. Now let's do this thing right. They begin to have children. Less than 400 years later, they're gathered together building this big tower to the sky with the idea that they're going to build up this tower that they can go up into heaven and exalt their throne above God's just like the devil. They went right back to the devil's way of thinking. Pride. They, wanna, they, they think that, that there's a way to become bigger than God. And that's the way people are out there in the world today. When they say, I'm the God of my life, they're saying, I'm bigger than God. And so the, it was called the Tower of Babel because God made them all Babel. He, he gave them different languages and confused them so that they couldn't all get together. And he said, you know, if they all have one mind and one heart, they could do this thing. They could build a tower to, he to heaven. So I had to confuse that and, and keep them from just uniting together to destroy themselves. So that shows that sin can't be washed away with just mere water. Because if it could, the flood would have took care of it. But sin has to be washed away with, with blood. That's the only thing that can wash sin away.
Well, God finds a friend in Abraham. Now, you know we've been on Sundays talking about Abraham, so I don't want to go too much into that. We've been talking about Abraham's life. But he finds a faith partner. Someone who's, uh, at this period in the time, he finds somebody with a little faith who trusts God. And God tells Abram to leave his house, and Abram does. And he goes out, and he finds someone who's trying to follow him, trying to listen. Now, he makes some mistakes or whatever, but at one point, he goes out by faith, and he saves his uh, cousin or his nephew Lot from a huge army, and he's got all these spoils. And uh, it says he gave tithes to the priest who came along named Melchizedek. I say this for a, for a reason. Uh, Melchizedek, it says, was uh, without beginning or end. He was a priest forever. And so... I believe it was the pre-incarnate Jesus, because Jesus, we know, is the priest for the high priest forever. But I believe it was Jesus come before Jesus had, had really gotten here. But it says that out of all the spoils that Abraham got, he gave a tenth part to Melchizedek. And that's where we get the tithe. Now, today some people say, well, the tithe. You know, I'm not going to be under the law. You ain't going to tell me to tithe or, or this or whatever. I'm not under the law. But see, the law hadn't even been given yet. This was before the law. This is Abraham, out of the willingness of his heart, gave the 10%, which is what the tithe means. He gave 10%. And this established the tithe on the earth. After that, God institutes through Abraham the uh, covenant of circumcision which is talking about cut and covenant. Boy. But, <laughs> but that represented a cutting off of the flesh, you know, and living in the Spirit and so forth. So God is doing, He's establishing things through His covenant buddy, Abram. And He changes His name to Abraham, and uh, Isaac is eventually born to them in an old age. We talked about how Isaac was a, a child of promise. And that, after Isaac was born, miraculously, through an old woman whose womb was dead, and Abraham, who was now 100 years old, uh, God tells Abra Abraham to make Ishmael leave the house. Ishmael was the son that they had made ten, four, about 14 years earlier out of their own human making. Because God had promised a child and they waited and they didn't get one. So they said, well, let's help God. Y'all know the story. And Abraham slept with Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar. And they produced a child and called it their own. But God says, this bond woman shall have no place with the free... This bond, this bond uh, woman's child shall have no place with my child, a child of promise. And that begins to set the idea, a thread as it were, that you'll see throughout the Bible that human works produce nothing. It's God who produces things through us through faith. And see, it was faith that produced Isaac. They believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and God gave him the miracle. So uh, God established that he's pleased by faith and not human works. And it's the same way today we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't. There's nothing we can do to earn this, except uh, receive it by faith. So we talked uh, a couple Sundays ago that uh, Abraham was asked to 
to slay Isaac and give him as a sacrifice. And as he was coming down with the knife, God said, Ho, ho, Abraham, don't hurt the child because you were uh, willing to sacrifice your son, your only son. Uh, I've got a ram caught in the thicket. and He's representing my son, my only son that I will eventually bring into the earth. And he made a partnership. See, that's, that's the point of faith. God does things through covenant with man. Once again, he wants men's free will to be involved. He wants permission, so to speak, to bring, to bring he wanted to be in covenant with the man through faith to be able to bring his son, Jesus, into the earth. So Abraham was counted righteousness by faith before he was ever circumcised and before the law was ever given. Does that make sense? And so the, the law cannot save you. Keeping the law cannot save you. The uh, circumcision cannot save you in any works of the flesh. Well, he had uh, his son Isaac. Isaac grew up, and he had two sons named... Uh, look at you, you Bible scholar. Esau and Jacob. Esau was a hairy red fella that was kind of... He was a country bumpkin and... And all he wanted to do was hunt and fish, and he could care less about any of that birthright stuff because one day he went out hunting and he came back to the tents and he was starving, and his brother Jacob was in there with a bowl of stew. And he said, give me some of that stew. I'm starving to death. And, and his brother said, well, you give me your birthright, and I will. And he goes, well, what does it matter a birthright when I'm starving to death? I'm about to die. Give me that bowl. And so he gave away his birthright. It meant nothing to him. And so you see people in the world like that today. You know, they're just hard-headed. Oh, I don't believe in none of that stuff. You know, that stuff don't bother me. I ain't worried about that, you know. When we die, we're all going to be in the ground with worms, and worms going to eat us, and it ain't going to matter, you know. And they're rough, and they're gruff, and they don't care about spiritual things at all. They're just human and fleshly. And uh, God doesn't like that. The Bible says God hated Esau. Now, you have to deal with that if you think God... I don't know if he hated his ways or how you, however you want to look at it, but the Bible says God hated Esau. So, Jacob, on the other hand, his name means swindler. And he certainly swindled his brother out of his birthright. And he was tricky. Jacob was tricky like that. He, he wasn't particularly pleasing to God either. And so he had to run from his brother later on. And he went to try to find a woman. Uh, and he ended up in his... Uh, Uncle Laban's house. Now, Uncle Laban was trickier than Jacob. And uh, he thought he was serving Uncle Laban seven years to get his younger daughter, Rachel. And what happened was, when it came the night for the wedding, Laban snuck his older daughter in there. And come to find out, the next morning, when light came on, you know, Jacob wasn't too excited about that. He wanted the younger daughter, so he went back, and his, his Uncle Laban said, well, I'll give you the younger daughter too, but it'll cost you seven more years. So he swindled Jacob out of 14 years of his life, and then he tried to swindle him out of the cattle that, that he had promised to give him. He was always swindling, and so the swindler met the swindler. And let me tell you something. If you're living in a swindling world, you're a swindler, you're going to meet bigger swindlers than you. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. 
You, you get involved in a bunch of mess, you're going to find your life in a mess. And so Jacob leaves and he's going back on the way home and he sleeps by the Jabbok River one night. His wives and all his family and stuff are coming with him. And it ends up that God comes out there to the bank of the Jabbok and begins to wrestle with Jacob that night. Wrestles with him all night long. And Jacob is just wrestling with God and and he can't do anything with God. And it almost seems like he's winning. And then by the morning time, God says, let me up. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And God strikes him on the hip, knocks his hip out of joint. And so God can get up if he wants to, bless me. And so, but God says, I'm going to bless you because you have wrestled with me and you have prevailed. Now you say, Man could wrestle with God and prevail? No, God won the fight. But that's why Jacob prevailed. Because the only way we win a fight with God is we surrender. That's how we win with God. We surrender to Him. We don't fight against God. And so, God blessed Jacob. God changed after that, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and the nation that we now know as Israel was born from the loins of Jacob. He had ten sons, and he had two grandsons that they would later name the twelve tribes of Israel after. And you know most of them, Judah and Issachar and Manasseh and all those kind of names. So you got the twelve tribes of Israel. And uh, you might remember Joseph. We talked about him not too long ago. Um, he was the one who his brothers threw him in a well and then sold him into slavery. And uh, sort of like Jesus, you know, he was betrayed by his own people. And he was, he's often referred to as a type shadow of Jesus because of his faithfulness and, and how God rose him up. You know, even though he was sold into slavery, he was falsely accused and put in prison. And when he finally got out, God... Gave him supernatural powers to t tell dreams, and Pharaoh promoted him to second in all of charge of the land, you know. And then he forgave his brothers and saved them from the famine. And what a picture of Jesus! Risen to second in command of all the land, forgave his brothers and saved them. And so we see threads going through the Word of God. I'm going to tell you, the Old Testament is Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. But every thread in the Bible is Jesus, 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 and a little more Jesus. And once you know what you know now, like when I talked about when you look back on your life, now that you look back on the Word of God now, and you know what you know, it's all Jesus. All the prophecies, everything is pointing to Jesus. That is a major, major, overwhelming thread of the Bible. So where was I at? Okay, so uh, Joseph forgives his brothers and he moves his family. Jacob, his father, who's now called Israel, and all his belongings, all his family, all his servants, and, and Pharaoh allows him to park them in Goshen, which is a part of Egypt. And the Israelites begin to uh, prosper there in Egypt because they have Pharaoh's protection and now they're saved from the famine and they're, they're living up the good life. And that's kind of like when we get saved. We're in Goshen. We feel like we're untouchable. You remember Goshen was the town later on. When the plagues come, it was dark everywhere else, but it was light in Goshen. 
And so the people are living in Goshen, but then they begin to prosper so much, the Egyptians begin to get scared of them. And a new pharaoh was put into office or whatever, another one died off. And uh, after a certain amount of time, they forgot about their love for Joseph. Joseph was dead and gone. And so the Egyptians began to persecute the Israelites, sort of like the world does today. They may celebrate our Christianity here in America for a little while, but now they're starting to persecute us, okay? And they began to even get to the point where they enslaved them for 400 years. And then it got to the point where Pharaoh made a decree that we're going to kill all the firstborn of these Israelites because they're growing too fast. Pretty soon they'll outnumber us and they'll whoop us. They got scared of them. And so that seems a lot like today too. They would kill our firstborn if they could, I guarantee you. So they begin to kill the firstborn. And then there's a beautiful baby born. And he's so beautiful his mom can't stand the thought of him getting killed. So she takes a basket and she covers it on the outside with pitch so it'll float. The same pitch that if you study it out was used around the ark so that water wouldn't get into it. The same pitch that reminds me of the blood of Jesus that protects us. Anyway, she put this baby in this little miniature ark, this little basket, and she puts him in the Nile River, and he floats over there, and it just so happens, you know, how God's things work, that the daughter of Pharaoh sees the baby and gets it brought in and falls in love with the baby and raises this little baby she call, that's called Moses. And she raises it in Pharaoh's house. And so he gets a good education. He, he lives as an Egyptian and doesn't know any better. Growing up in Pharaoh's house and he learns that he's actually a Hebrew. He's actually an Israelite. And when he's about 40 years old, you know, then he starts to care about his heritage and starting to care about the way his people are being mistreated. And so he goes out and you know the story. He, he sees an a Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and he tries to break it up and they get in a fight and he ends up killing the Egyptian hiding his body in the sand. He's trying to do the right thing. He wants to, to help his people, but now he's committed murder. And that, a lot of times, once again, you go back to the flesh, the works of the flesh can never really do what God wants it to do. It always makes a mistake. We need to be led by the Spirit of God, not by our flesh. We can't just run out and make things happen. We've got to be led by the Spirit. How many of you have ever went out and tried to witness to somebody on your own strength? Didn't ask the Holy Spirit to help you. You probably know what I'm talking about. But anyway, hopefully he didn't kill anybody. But he killed this guy, buried him in the sand. And uh, then the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. He says, what are y'all fighting? Y'all brothers. And one of them speaks up and says, yeah, what are you going to do? Kill me like you did the Egyptian? He said, oh, I didn't know. No, I saw that. <laughs> and so then he runs and he hides. And it's a good thing because Pharaoh probably would have tried to arrest him for that. So he hides out and... Uh, in the wilderness for 40 more years until he finally gets a burning bush experience from God and God calls him and God says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, back to the place that you're running from. I want you to go back and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You know the story, Moses complained and he, he made all kinds of excuses. And, and if you're looking at threads through this, you can begin to see where you've been a lot of times in your life 
All of these stories are carrying deep meanings. Like I said, I've got to keep way up here. If I don't, I'll get bogged down and we won't get anywhere tonight. But I'm telling you, Moses was making excuses, but God's, God finally got angry. He said, Moses, I said I was going to be with you now. You get your little tail down there to Egypt. <laughs> God got stern with Moses. And so Moses goes to Egypt. Um, God shows him how to do some miracles, things. And before you know it, you've seen the movie, what's it called? Prince of Egypt. Hopefully if you hadn't, go see that movie. It's a cartoon movie, but it's really good. Not completely biblically accurate, but it's pretty good. And uh, he does the ten, God does the ten plagues. Pharaoh res keeps resisting, hard-headed, and, and changes his mind. And, and he ends up, you know, they finally let the people go. And Moses leads this huge group, probably two million Israelites by this time, out of Egypt. Pharaoh said, just go. You done killed my firstborn, you know. And, I, and you done brought frogs on his fleas, turned them all to blood, hailstorms, all these darkness, all these plagues. And some people are just hard-headed. Some of you have been through so many plagues in your life. I mean, how many plagues did you have to go through until you turned to Jesus? But anyway, Pharaoh was hard-headed, and, and, and uh, he finally let the people go. And Moses, can you imagine the faith it took Moses to say, y'all come on, follow me. Two million people, where are we going, God? And God leads them to the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh changes his mind and brings all the armies of Egypt out there to kill him. And God separates them, you know the story. Uh, by a whirlwind, and he protects them. And the people are complaining already, man. They got this slave mentality. They're, they're, they're just thinking everything's going to go wrong. And that's the way when I came out of the world, man, I had a bad attitude. You know? It took me a while to get used to that God wants me joyous and happy and positive thinking. He wants me to, to think the best and have faith instead of doubt and unbelief and complaining and grumping. But that's what they were doing. And they got to the Red Sea, and when they saw the army coming on one side and the Red Sea on the other, man, they threw up their hands and you done brought us out here to get us killed. And Moses was like, y'all just hush. And he got, by faith, he stuck his rod in the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted. And they walked through on dry ground. And so they, they went across, but, it, you know, the people continued to complain. How do you complain when you've seen the ten plagues and you've walked through the Red Sea on dry ground? How do you ever doubt that God again? Some of you have seen miracles like that, but then when it comes time for another miracle, we still like, oh, I don't know about this God. Can you really do it? Can you? You know, I hear people saying things like, I don't know how, you know, a fish could have swallowed Jonah and he could have stayed alive in a fish's belly. I just don't understand that. You know, I, just, I would like to believe the Bible, but I just can't believe it because of that story. Oh, what's easier for God, to get a fish to swallow a person and keep him alive or to throw a couple of galaxies into space? I mean, how ridiculous is that? We forget who we're talking about. He is God. People, I saw a documentary that says that the Red Sea, you know, at that time of year, it was only ankle deep, and that's why they were able to walk across. Well, then the real miracle must have been how God drowned all of Pharaoh's army in ankle deep water. I mean, that's ridiculous. Why can't we just believe that God is able? Well, a lot of us believe that He's able, 
The problem is a lot of us don't believe he's willing. Oh, well, I got off track here. Anyway, <laughs> Moses delivers God's people. God begins to travel with them in, out in the wilderness. He provides manna for them each morning. He provide, when, they, when they aren't by a water source, he even provides water to come out of a rock. And we know that the Bible says Jesus is our bread of life. And Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He's the one that quenches our thirst. And so, once again, you see a thread of Jesus in everything that is happening here. Moses goes up on the mountain to bring down the law. He goes up there and was with God for 40 days, you know. He's up there in the presence of God. God is revealing Himself to him. And, and God takes two tablets and He, with His finger, writes out the Ten Commandments. He's thinking, these people, they just don't, maybe if I can give them something to go by. No, he's not really. That's what I would be thinking about. I'm going to give him something to go by. But God wrote down Ten Commandments. He said, let's start with these. And so Moses, he's probably all excited. We got something to go by. We got instructions. And he's coming down the mountain. He starts hearing some noise. He gets down there. They're having an orgy at the bottom of the mountain. First indication that they weren't going to be able to keep the law, probably. <laughs> these people, they're like, Moses, you've been gone for 40 days. Let's... Let's have an orgy. <laughs> They're worshiping a golden calf 40 days later. Have you seen people that, you know, you get in church and they, they give their so-called give their heart to Jesus and 40 days later, no telling where you'll find them. Moses had to be shaking his head about now. All right, I'll be back. <laughs> He goes up the mountain for another 40 days and he gets in the Ten Commandments again and he brings them back. And he's fasting this whole time, by the way. So I'm sure he wasn't too happy about having to go back. No, but he was in the presence of God. He was taken care of. But he brings down the law the second time and it, uh, then God begins to deal with him how to build a tabernacle. That's like a big tent where, where God can house God's presence, like a big church out in the wilderness. And so the, he begins to work with them on building a tabernacle. And uh, they, they set up animal sacrifices and stuff according to the laws of Moses. And what that is is just a precursor to the blood that was ultimately cleanses us of all of our sin. But it was the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sheep and oxen and so forth would temporary, temporarily cover our sins. And it was teaching a principle. It was a thread. It was showing us that there is a lamb that is going to be slain that is going to take away the sins of the world. And so that's what the animal sacrifices are about now. So if, if you ever see people that's hung up on the Old Testament talking about doing animal sacrifices, they don't know that the debt has been paid. But it was a shadow of the sacrifice that was to come. In Hebrews 9.22, remember I said water couldn't wash away the sin? It says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified by blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, the wages of sin is death. And the only thing that can combat, combat the death is life. And life is in the blood. And so something had to die to pay for your sin. We know what ultimately who ultimately had to die to pay for your sin. So sin is a big deal. It costs blood. It costs the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
During this time, God is, is living in a box that they made called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a place where He stays, His presence. So if He came out of there, you know, in their state, and they're, uh, they're not able to handle the holiness of God in their state. So God stays in a box just so that He can be with His people. That's, that's a thread that you will see because God never leaves us. He never forsakes us, right? He is with us always. We talked about, we saw that in our lives, and we see that here. He, he's always with the people. He always wants to be with the people. When they get near the promised land, they send out 12 spies. We're probably going to have to close here in a minute. He sends out 12 spies to spy out the promised land, this land that God has uh, promised to give His people. 12 of them go in, 12 of them come back, Ten of them come back with a bad news. It is beautiful land. We'd love to have it, but God isn't able to get it for us. Man, those guys are giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They would just bowl us over. They would kill us right off the bat. We don't have a chance. Let's, let's just go back to Egypt. <laughs> well, two of the spies had a different idea. They were Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb went in. They said, are you guys kidding me? Did you see the size of them grapes? Did you see those melons? I mean, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land God told us about. Let's go in and possess it. We can do it. Surely we're able. God can give us what he promised. They had a spirit of faith. And they tried to talk the other people into it. Come on, guys. But the other people couldn't get past their slave mentality. Couldn't, couldn't see it. Oh, no, no. If we go in there, they said they're big guys in there. We're scared. Let's just go back. Let's just go back. And you're talking about making God mad because God, it's impossible to please God without faith. And these people had seen miracles after miracles. And God had done everything He could to prove to them, this is your promise. This is where I'm taking you. And they wouldn't go in. And He swore in His wrath, you guys, you doubters, are not ever going to see my promised land. And I want you to know as a Christian, even as a Christian, if you doubt God, you will not enter into the promises. Because even when they went in, guess what? They had to fight for the towns. They had to, by faith, obtain the land. It was promised to them, but short of heaven, we will always be in a fight for what we believe. We'll be in a fight to take the promises of God, to take kingdom territory for the kingdom. God swore in his wrath that they would never enter into his promised land. At one point, he got so upset with them, he sent fiery serpents to bite the people who were complaining. I don't know if that's a warning to you, but it says that the Old Testament is given as, as a warning to us, as an example to us. If you're living your life complaining about everything, don't be surprised when you get bit. Because it will come back to bite you. But God tells him, well, Moses, thank goodness for mamas that intercede on our behalf. Thank goodness for prayer warriors that intercede on our behalf. Moses interceded on behalf of the people, said, God, don't kill them. Please have mercy on them. God said, Moses, Get you a stick, 
make you a bronze serpent and hold it up. And if the people, the people who are ready to repent will look at that snake, I'll heal them. The ones that are in process of dying because of all the snake bites. And so they did. The people that trusted God and were willing to repent looked at that snake. And it healed them. And you're thinking to yourself, what? Why, God? You're looking at that piece of the puzzle and said, that don't make no sense. You look at a lot of things God says, and you're looking at that one little piece of the puzzle, and you're saying, that don't make sense. And we're always questioning God. We're always reasoning with God. Well, God, why would in the world would you put a snake on a pole? That don't make no sense. A snake on a pole, really? Can we do something more traditional? <laughs> that don't remotely make sense, God. And we argue with God. Has God ever been wrong about anything? I used to look at my kids and tell them, have I ever been wrong about anything and still you <laughs> disobey me? I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. No. But they got, got this one little piece. And we're thinking, God don't know what He's doing. But we can't see the bigger picture. He sees yesterday, today, and forever all at the same time. And we're arguing with Him. Whew. In John 3.14, we'll close with this. John 3.14. Many of you may be able to quote John 3.16. So this is probably a precursor to something very important in the Bible. We see why God fashioned a snake and put it on a pole. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. See, it was a thread. God is painting a picture. Well, why, why would you make a serpent? I mean, not, that's the opposite of Jesus. The serpent's the devil. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became sin for us. When Jesus hung on that cross and He bore upon His body the sins of the entire world, He became hideous. He became a serpent. The epitome of evil. He was, he was carrying the weight of all the darkness of all the generations that had come before Him and would ever live on this earth. The generations that are here on earth today. He became sin. So much that the father couldn't look at him. He said, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was no little thing. We think about the holes in his hands and feet. And we think, oh, how horrible. And it was. But how much more? The mental and spiritual torment of the sin that was placed upon him. But all who will repent and look to that cross today will be saved. For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe it, Nicodemus? Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.